0: that we're entitling Rooted, uh, that we will be in for the next six months together. So that means you've only missed one message now, and you don't even have to miss it completely. You can go home, and after you watch Duke and Kentucky lose today, you can watch uh, my sermon sermon online. Amen. Uh, But this morning, actually, and for the next two weeks now, uh, we are going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. The more I dug into this passage this week in preparing, the more gold I uncovered uh, until I just eventually decided that we couldn't cover it all today, and so we're going to need to split this passage into two sermons. We'll unpack it again together next week, and so your bulletins... um, not right. (laughs) There's six bullet points there. We're only going to get to the first three this morning. That's fine. But we are unpacking together a practice that has been at the very center of the church's corporate worship together for the last 2,000 years, a custom that many of us have no doubt engaged in hundreds, if not thousands of times now over the course of your lives. But perhaps without the level of depth and understanding and intentionality that we are aiming for in our study over these next two Sundays, we are talking about the Lord's Supper. Communion, the Eucharist, goes by different names. I'm more concerned this morning with what it is and why we do it. Now, perhaps you haven't received communion thousands of times in your life. Perhaps you never have. And we're especially glad that you're here with us if that is you. Uh, Maybe you're still, like Aisha was referencing, asking those good questions, probing, trying to figure out what the Christian faith is all about, and maybe even the Lord's Supper itself. I hope that we can answer those for you today. Or perhaps you're not new to the church, uh, but you haven't given the Lord's Supper the kind of time and thought that it deserves because perhaps um, the church you grew up in didn't. I pray this morning God will use this message to inspire within you a greater appreciation for and love for this table. I worked at a church through Divinity School that only took communion once a quarter together four times a year. When I asked my, my lead pastor why, he said he didn't want it to become monotonous. He wanted it to stay special for people. And I had to he- hold my tongue because, because what I wanted to ask him was, do you take the same approach to intimacy with your wife? Uh, let's only touch each other four times a year to make sure it stays special. I reject the notion this morning that frequency and significance are inversely proportional. And yet, neither are they directly proportional either. Observing communion every week doesn't necessarily make it more important to you, does it? Many of you, on the flip side, grew up in churches where you took communion all the time, where it was maybe even the focal point of the the service, the climax of your corporate worship wasn't the sacrament of the word like it is in our church and the preaching and teaching of of scripture but it was the sacrament of the table and perhaps because of that it had become sort of an empty ritual in your church why well why is exactly the right question we want to ask this morning perhaps it had become an empty ritual because there was no why anymore you just did it because that's what you did no intentionality or vitality, and so this morning I want to re- try and recover that this morning and, and remind us of why we do this. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this why? In remembrance of me. We are invited this morning collectively to remember Jesus through this meal, and I am convinced that when it's rightly understood and properly valued, there's perhaps no better, more profound way to remind ourselves of our Lord and what he's done for us than at this table. And so over the next two weeks, like I said, I'll give you six reasons from Mark 14, why the Lord's Supper is so significant this morning. We'll examine the first three together. So if you would, as you're able, stand with me for the reading. Out of respect for the reading of God's word, I'll read it for us from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread... When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you there. Follow him wherever he enters. Say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after the other, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink it of the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you use it in a powerful way this morning? To teach us, to move us, inspire us to a deeper understanding, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. A deeper appreciation and value, not just of of this sacrament of, of communion, but of the meaning and importance of it. The why, why we do it, what it is that we celebrate at the table. Father, would you convict us of our need for the gospel this morning? In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Observation number one about this meal is that the Lord's Supper is supernatural. It's supernatural. Now, it may not be supernatural in the ways that some of your churches growing up told you it was supernatural. But let's examine... Historically, biblically, the ways in which it is supernatural, line by line, we'll go through verses 12 through 16. We're told that this is the first day of unleavened bread, Passover. Passover, when Jews remember God's deliverance from their bondage in Egypt, as recorded in the book of Exodus, was a week-long festival, sometimes called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened bread because matzah is a staple of the Passover meal. And we don't have time to get into all the symbolism of Passover. It's rich. But we do need to to dig into why the name itself. The name Passover reminds us of how God rescued his people. It was the tenth and final plague sent to break Pharaoh's obstinate heart, the death of the firstborn plague. God had sent an angel of death to strike all firstborn children in the land of Egypt And the way that the angel recognized the Israelite households and passed over them, hence the name, was they they had sacrificed a lamb and spread its blood over the doorposts of their house. Now, we left off in Mark chapter 14 verses 1 through 11 last week when it was two days before the Passover. So that was Tuesday of Holy Week. Got to do some timeline stuff here. And remember, Jesus had been staying in Simon's house in Bethany, which is a little village one and a half miles east of Jerusalem. Now, Mark fast forwards in verse 12, and it's now the first day of Passover. So this is Thursday morning. We sometimes call it Monday Thursday in the church, Monday from the Latin mandatum, which means commandment and reminds us that Jesus commands us to observe this meal. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Trust me, you need this meal, this visible reminder of what I've done for you. And then Mark says, it was the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. And now we've, we've run into a bit of an issue. So let me explain. The synoptic gospels, synoptic um, means seen, optic, together, sin. Because scholars view Matthew, Mark, and Luke as joined together in a way that John um, isn't. He's kind of the outlier. The synoptics, though, share most of the same stories in mostly the same order, whereas John often differs. And the timeline of Holy Week is a case in point. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke clearly portray Jesus, his last supper with his disciples here, as a Passover meal. The disciples ask him in verse 12, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So they're preparing to eat the Passover together Thursday evening. But in John's account, Passover that year fell on Friday. In John chapter 18, after the the chief priest arrest Jesus, the next day on Friday, they march him to Pilate's house, but they don't enter Why? John tells us, so that they would not be defiled by entering the house of a Gentile, but so that they could eat the Passover later that night. So which is it? Was Passover on Thursday or Friday, or does the Bible actually contradict itself, as skeptics would have us believe? Well, it turns out that the ancient records attest to two Passovers that had come to be observed by first-century Jews By this time in history, one on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, when uh, Scripture in the Old Testament would advocate that, that they celebrate, that was celebrated by the Galilean Jews. The other was on Nisan 15, which is observed on the 15th day of that month by Judean Jews. And there were all sorts of explanations as to why this tradition of two Passovers had developed by this point in the first century. Jerusalem is so crowded that the temple priest had to spread out the sacrifices. There's only so many of them with knives. Uh, Galileans counted days from sunrise to sunrise, whereas Judeans counted it from sunset to sunset. But the point, that what I want us to appreciate about that this morning is God's supernatural intervention in the course of human history to allow Jesus to simultaneously be and do two things with regard to Passover because it was celebrated on two different days. On the one hand, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is able to consummate the 1,500-year-old tradition of Passover, and effectively bring it to an end. This is the last legitimate Passover in the first century here with Jesus. Just as he does the temple, just as Jesus does the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, in eating the last Passover supper here with his disciples, and in the very words that Jesus uses to identify himself with this meal, This is my body, my blood in a shocking new way. Jesus is proving that he's actually the fulfillment of the Passover. He is our new Passover. Just like he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, just like he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. That is crucial for us to see this morning. That's that's what we get from the synoptic gospels. Jesus, as a Galilean, observed Passover on Thursday. And yet, in John's account, Excuse me. with John's distinctive emphasis on Jesus' triumph over his enemies, Judas, the religious leaders, ultimately Satan and hell and death itself. John plays all this, this theme of conflict up a lot. John understands, as a good storyteller, uh, the more conflict, the better the story is. So John highlights the vantage point of those Judean chief priests who recognize Passover, because they're Judeans, the following day on Friday. And why is that important theologically? Well, because now Jesus is not only the fulfillment of Passover in a general sense, but when is Jesus crucified in John's gospel? It was the day of preparation of the Passover, John tells us in chapter 19. It was about the sixth hour, and they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. In John 19, Jesus is killed in preparation for the Judean Passover. And do you know how you prepare for the Passover? Yeah. You take your lamb to be slaughtered. In the Gospel of John, Jesus dies at the exact same moment as the Passover lambs are being slaughtered downhill in the temple. So I want you to imagine that visual, friends. Imagine you're waiting there in line with your lamb, Drowning in a sea of sheep, bleeding and buying, and you hear their screams coming from inside the temple as they're slaughtered one by one, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe. And then all of a sudden, in that cacophony, it's drowned out by a single voice that cries out from on high It is finished. It's finished. Because he is our once and for all Passover Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John had prophesied. This can only be of God's own supernatural doing. Even the way that the disciples find the upper room is supernatural. Mark stresses that to us. Verse 13 Jesus sends two disciples. Luke tells us in his gospel, it was Peter and John. They go to find a man carrying a jar of water, which is odd in ancient Palestine. Only women carried water jars. So look for the guy with the purse. Follow him. He'll lead you to another guy who's already got this special room secretly somehow prepared for us. But we haven't heard anything about Jesus making these preparations because I don't think he did. I think this is supernatural. Jesus supernaturally orchestrates and ordains all these events to make sure he is able to eat this final meal with his disciples. Why? Well, for starters, he had to keep the location secret from Judas. Judas is already looking for a chance to betray him, so Jesus miraculously makes arrangements on the spot, secretly with, with, with Peter and James, so that uh, Judas doesn't overhear and doesn't have time to sell him out. But more importantly, Jesus says in Luke twenty-two, fifteen, 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Earnestly desired. Yes, to prove that I'm the fulfillment of Passover. Yes. Yes, to inaugurate the sacrament for the church. Think about that. If Jesus gets betrayed one night sooner, doesn't eat this last supper with his disciples, you and I don't have this table. But as much as anything, I think Jesus earnestly desired to share this one more meal with his disciples and supernaturally intervene to make sure he could because he loved the disciples. He loved them. They were his friends. They were his family, his brothers. And that's the second thing that I want us to note about the Lord's Supper in this passage. This meal is communal. It is Communal. First of all, it's about community with Christ. Sandy Wilson points out that Muslims don't have an equivalent to the Lord's Supper. Jews don't have a communion. Listen, we all worship God as holy. We all bow down in reverence at God's majesty and his might. But at the table, at the table, our Lord reminds us that he calls us his friends. Who do you eat with? You eat with your friends, with your family. John 15, 15, he calls us his friends. That's, That's who we eat with. That's an intimate thing. That's why I think every life group at West Hills should share a meal together every week. But secondly, this table doesn't represent just any meal. This table draws us together in true fellowship with one another. Koinonia is the Greek word. Koinonia, Genuine, deep Christian community with one another like nothing else can. This is true fellowship. I have fun dancing with y'all. My wife wanted to to show some videos this morning, but we're not going to do that. I have fun dancing with you. I have fun at talent shows. I have fun at after-church picnics. That's all great. But, friends, you can dance at the club. uh my in-laws have plenty of social functions and events at their country club that you can, you can go and do. This is true Christian fellowship. Even at our worship services as a church, Sunday mornings at West Hills are for everyone. The more, the merrier. And you better be bringing people with you to Easter. My wife stuffed 1,500 Easter eggs for you this past week. Don't let her work go in vain. Go see the tables and invite people after the service today. Sundays are for everyone. Sundays from 11.35.40 to 11.45 are for believers. The table, this meal, is what separates the church, the saints, the redeemed, the committed followers of Jesus from the rest of the world. This meal is how we know who the church is, who's in and who's out. Jesus came, I came not to bring peace but a sword, division, The Lord's Supper is a clear dividing line between the church and the world. The Reformers talked about this idea of fencing the table, guarding the table from those who would eat and drink in an unworthy manner, and thus, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, bring guilt and drink judgment upon themselves. You can do that in one of two ways— You can can drink judgment on yourself as a believer if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner when you forget that communion is about community. This is a family meal. Communion, like the Christian faith in general, is not just about you and Jesus. We've got to see past our 21st century Americanized, individualized context and realize Jesus did not just die for you individually. That is such a small narcissistic, myopic gospel. Jesus died for us. The scripture is clear. Jesus died to redeem for himself a people. Communion isn't just about you being close with God. It's about being close with one another too. It's about telling, and it is telling, that both Paul and Jesus emphasize not the vertical component of communion, me and Jesus, but the horizontal aspect, me and you, when they warn us against eating unworthily. Paul says to the believers in Corinth, again, chapter 11, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. He says it's not actually the Lord's supper that you're eating, because that's not what this meal is about. It's become a race to see who can get to the table first and you don't wait on one another. You've forgotten that half of the point of the meal is to draw you together in unity around the table. A family meal, a family comprised, made up of, formed by your common spiritual DNA, the gospel. Jesus goes so far as to say, if, if in the midst of worshiping God, you realize that you never fully resolve that issue with that brother or sister, that when you had that falling out, you ought to leave your gift there at the altar and go and first be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift, Matthew 5. He doesn't explicitly mention communion, but I think it's clearly in view. Jesus wants so much better for us, for his family, his adopted sons and daughters, than family strife and conflict. He doesn't want us to look like that dysfunctional family from the famous SNL, I drive a Dodge Stratus scene. You guys remember that? Google it after, after this if you don't know. It's worth watching. Jesus wants so much better than that kind of family dysfunction and strife for us. In fact, it's, it's in this context of the Passover meal that Jesus utters his famous words from John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also now to love one another. Actually, by all this, this is how people are going to know that you belong to me. Not just that you eat the the meal, but that you love one another. And this is a accountability check on that, because you don't eat this if you're not loving one another, if you've broken that fellowship. The second way to partake in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy, guilty manner is to eat and drink as an unbeliever. So friends, if that is you this morning, if you have not yet confessed and repented and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you've attended church your entire life. Maybe you went through catechism. You know all the right Bible answers. Maybe you've even unknowingly received communion in an unworthy manner up to this point. I don't know. But I want to be clear with you this morning. God loves you. We love you at West Hills. We love you being here with us. Please keep coming. Keep asking those questions. Learn with us. Sing with us. Grow with us. But please do not eat and drink this meal. This is not for you. Not yet. Jesus said also in John chapter 13, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. John came baptizing with water. Jesus washes his followers with the Holy Spirit. Upon spiritual rebirth, he says, we must be born twice, once with water, your physical birth, when your mother's water broke, and the second time of the Spirit. If you haven't been, if you haven't been spiritually reborn and given your life to Christ, then you don't yet have a share with him in this meal. You're not yet in communion with Jesus or communion with this family bonded by our spiritual DNA So at best, it's pointless for you to take this meal, and at worst, you're drinking judgment upon yourself. But I want to share the good news with you this morning, that far from being some exclusive thing that we're trying to keep you from this morning, there is nothing more radically welcoming than Jesus and his gospel. This morning, there's nothing that could bring us more joy as a church, and nothing that could Make the angels in heaven rejoice more this morning than if this morning was your first legitimate Lord's Supper. Today can be your day of salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can join the family today. This meal can be yours today, the community of the faithful. And if you've got... Lingering questions about how to do that or what that means after the service. Please come find me in the back. Please come find one of our, our ushers here. Uh, uh, sorry, our elders here at the front. Kids, talk to your parents. Don't leave today without figuring that out. Number three, confession. The Lord's Supper is confessional. Confession is exactly what it takes to be a part of this community. Confession is exactly what this meal is about. It's supernatural, it's communal, and it's confessional. Notice the tone of the meal biblically as the disciples celebrate with Jesus. Celebrate, I use that term loosely. Verse 19 says the disciples were sorrowful. Why? Now we're going to talk next week about how we shouldn't always just be sorrowful and, and moping when we take communion. There's a lot of emotions that should go into this meal as we receive. But let's just focus on the, the sorrowful part right now for this morning. Why are they sorrowful? Because Jesus just dropped a bomb on them in verse 18. He told them. He's already told them he's going to suffer and die. But now he reveals that his betrayer will be a disciple, a follower, a friend. His words take us back to David's prophecy in Psalm 41, nine, when David said, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Of him, Jesus says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better that he not been born. Now, we know that he's talking about Judas. But would you notice something very interesting with me? Mark doesn't name Judas. Matthew and John both explicitly call him out at this point, Mark doesn't. Even though Mark knows Judas is the one who's gonna betray him, why? I wanna to suggest to you that Mark is inviting us once again to read ourselves into the story. He doesn't want us to be so caught up on Judas and how, what a screw-up Judas is that we don't read ourselves into the story in a personal, convicting, challenging, ultimately redemptive way. In the same way that last week we read ourselves into Jesus' rejection by the priests and scribes, into Judas' exploitation in verses 10 and 11, now Mark is inviting us to identify with Judas again to the extent that we all betray Christ every single day. What is our sin if not a betrayal of our Lord? Jesus tells them that my betrayer is the one who is dipping bread into the dish with, with me. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken part in a Passover meal, but it's pretty nasty. Lamb, stale-tasting bread, mannishchevets, bitter herbs. This meal is not delicious. But the only edibly redeemable part of the meal is the cheroset. That's the sweet, pasty dipping sauce for the bread that's made of fruits and nuts, and it's really delicious, if it's done right. So I'm guessing by the time this portion of the meal rolled around, The disciples have been pounding this dipping sauce, right, with Jesus. They've all been eating a lot of the keroset, right? So he waits and he lets them eat it all. And then he says, you know, they're asking, wait a minute, is it I? Is it I? And Jesus doesn't really necessarily clear it up. He doesn't say, it's Judas. He says, it's the one dipping with me. And they're all freaking out, right? Because they've all been dipping See, friends, there's humility in recognizing that it could be any one of us. Is it I? Is it I? There's humility in recognizing it's not just a hypothetical possibility. It is our reality that we betray him every single day in our sin. Jesus tells them in verse 27, you will all fall away. You'll all abandon me in my hour of greatest need. Friends, this is the point. Peter, remember, Peter says, I won't. Peter says, oh, I got a special surprise for you, Peter. Not once, not twice, three times. What's the point? The point is the greatest among us, the most faithful among us is called to remember when we receive this meal that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that we all stand just as broken, just as guilty before a perfect God and just as in need of his undeserved grace, and that's exactly what this meal is. It is a grace. A sacrament is a visible means of grace, an external physical sign, symbol of an internal spiritual reality. Jesus reminds us, though, it's only for those who confess It's the sick who need the doctor. It's the hungry who ask for the bread of life. And if you have not yet come to recognize how spiritually starved you are trying to feed yourself, once again, I reiterate, this meal is not for you yet. This meal is for the sorrowful. This meal is is for those like the disciples in verse 19, those whose hearts have been broken by the weight of our guilt and our sin, and yet who have had our mourning turned into joy, Jeremiah 31, by the only one who can take something as horrific as the cross and redeem it, transform it, and use it for the greatest victory in in all of human history. That's why it's supernatural. Only God can do that. Friends, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is good news. That can be your story this morning. Let's pray.